Shifting borders. Welcome to Shifting Borders. Fronteras movidizas. A podcast series by Princeton University students about how the forces of nationalism and identity shape people around the world. I'm series host Luke Maurer. And over the next five episodes, I'll be introducing you to Princeton classmates who have reported and produced stories that include the weaponization of headscarves, the erasure of inconvenient history, and the awkward dance of adjustment between refugees and the societies taking them in. Today's episode, episode three, is called Careless Memories. It's about nationalists revising the past to influence the present. The episode's host is Francesca Block. Here she is. Thanks, Luke. Hello, I'm Francesca Block. I've reported this episode with another student who wishes to remain anonymous due to security concerns in China. She has asked that we call her Christine. You will hear her voice and her incredible reporting throughout this episode. In today's episode of Shifting Borders, we're going to explore the most official version of memories, history. History is central to national identity which is why it's so often manipulated. We see stories like this happening all over the world. Often, it's when nationalist governments come to power and try to reframe or rewrite history to fit their political agenda. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, who are the people being cut out of the narrative? Christine and I will try to answer this question. We have a couple of stories about people like these. They are inconvenient to the government's picture of national pride, and they're easy to erase. Francesca. You talk to Hungarian Jews who are being erased from their own heritage. What's going on there? Well, the nationalist government in Hungary is run by Prime Minister Viktor Orban and the Fidesz party. Since taking office in 2010, they've been promoting a very narrow idea of national pride. They're trying to rehabilitate former leaders who promoted anti-Semitism before World War II and helped deport Hungarian Jews. That's left Holocaust survivors in Hungary fighting to keep their experiences alive in Hungarian history books. Wow, that's incredibly unsettling, especially given the atrocities of World War II. Tell us more. Meet Vera Sekeresh Varsha. (laughs) She's 88 years old and lives in Budapest, the city where she was born and raised. Over Zoom, Vera tells me that her family has deep roots in Hungary, roots that date back all the way to the 19th century, when Hungary was a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire run by the Habsburg monarchs. In the middle of the 19th century, uh, there was the revolution and the, and the liberation war against the Habsburgs. And my great-grandfather participated in it because he was the poor little Jew who was wandering with little things from shtetl to shtetl, perhaps from village to village, I think. Both sides of Vera's family are Jewish. They were some middle-class people, but were not interested in being too religious or whatever. Growing up, she strongly identified with the poems of Miklos Radnodi. 
a great Hungarian poet. And he said, I am not Hungarian Jewish poet, I'm Hungarian poet. And that's what he was, Hungarian poet. Hungary's politicians didn't always feel the same way. In the 1930s, the government passed laws that legalized discrimination against its Jewish citizens. Magda Brown experienced these laws firsthand and explains them in this lecture series on YouTube. It all begins with numerous clauses, which means in Latin that only 1% of Jewish children were allowed into higher education. Then came uh, another law which uh, restricted intermarriage, followed by confiscating of larger properties. Jews were forced to give up their jobs. They had to wear a yellow Star of David on their clothes, which marked them as second-class citizens. Hungary's leader at the time was Miklos Horty. During World War II, he allied himself with Adolf Hitler, which, at first, kept the Nazis out of Hungary. But inside the country, Jewish citizens like Vera were persecuted for not being Hungarian enough. Uh, how do they mean I am not Hungarian? I am more Hungarian, I felt more Hungarian than some other. A year later, in March of 1944, German troops entered Budapest. TV footage shows tanks riding through the streets as Hungarians cheer. A few months later, the Budapest local government issued an order forcing all Jews to move into designated areas called starred homes. Each of those homes was marked with a Star of David. When we left our home earlier in May, and when we went to the, to the start house, I took a doll, a big one. Vera says her mother told her to take the doll as protection. She believed that if her fellow Hungarians saw little Vera with the doll, they might feel protective of her. Nobody would harm mother thought naively, a little child. Her family settled in a one-and-a-half-bedroom apartment. Eventually, 35 people, mostly strangers, ended up living there together. Vera remembers sleeping next to a girl her age in the living room. We both were sleeping under the piano of the original owner. But of course, that was not enough room for us. Their legs stuck out at one end of the piano. Vera remembers hoping that no one would accidentally step on their feet at night. Vera's family spent most of their time indoors because of strict curfews. If they went outside, they were required to wear a yellow Star of David on their chests. Vera pauses while talking about this star. Oh, I wanted to take it here and show you. Shall I run sure. for it? Okay, then I leave, leave okay. you for a short moment. Okay, I'll see you soon. She returned in less than a minute. Here I show. Can mm. you see? Yeah. The star's yellow color has faded. The darkened edges are fraying, and stray pieces of yellow string hang from certain spots. Vera used the string to tie the symbol of exclusion onto her clothing. 
And was that the one that was sewn on to, to your jackets and your clothes? It is the, uh, the original one. She stood up in front of the camera and placed the star on her chest. It was the same place where she was forced to sew it on her clothing nearly 80 years earlier. Jewish Hungarians living in the countryside had it worse. Speaking to NPR in 2019, Holocaust survivor Rosa Heisler recalled how Hungarian police forced her family out of their home in March of 1944, marching them past neighbors and acquaintances. A few felt sorry for us, just shut their windows and drew their curtains. Most shouted anti-Jewish slogans and threw things at us. The police loaded Heisler and her family, along with thousands of other Jews from the area, onto trains that usually carried livestock. The families were packed together for five days. The train didn't stop until it reached Auschwitz. More than 440,000 Hungarian Jews were murdered there, including Vera's beloved great-aunt. She was 72 years old, fine woman, good mother, good grandmother, and a nice person, honest person. After the mass deportations in the spring, Vera and her family used connections to purchase fake birth certificates with Christian names. By October, Hitler pushed out his ally Miklos Horty and installed a new regime in Hungary run by the fascist Aerocross party. Vera calls the Aerocross the mob. Its militias used to line up Jewish Hungarians along the Danube River and execute them by firing squad. Vera watched them shoot her own neighbors in her building's courtyard. So there was crying, and then the, you can imagine. The, no, you can't imagine. In the beginning of 1945, the Soviet army captured Budapest and drove out the Aerocross regime. Vera and most of her family survived. Vera's mother tore off the yellow stars from the family's clothing and burned them. Vera watched her throw the stars into the kitchen stove. And she was throwing, and I asked her to keep. Let, let's keep at least one. I felt that we have to keep, because that was so significant uh, a moment in our, our lives. After World War II, the Communist Party ran hungry. The party promoted equality as an antidote to the vicious nationalism that left Europe in ruins after World War II. But the party also cheated in elections, tortured its critics, and arrested many accused of disloyalty. Students organized a mass protest in 1956 that turned into a country-wide revolution. The Soviets responded by invading Hungary. Hungarian radio stations broadcast reports before they were shut down. As the Soviet Union weakened in the late 1980s, an anti-communist resistance emerged. One of the leaders was Viktor Orban, a law student who said it was time to re-establish Hungarian identity. Here's Orban speaking in Budapest in 1989. 
as the Iron Curtain fell in Europe. He talks about having the courage to make Hungary truly independent by rejecting communism. At first, Orban was seen as a reformer and a progressive. He formed a party, Fidesz, that won elections for the first time in 1998, the first time Orban became prime minister. The socialists defeated Fidesz in 2002. When Orban's party finally won elections again in 2010, its message was far more nationalistic. Orban has been prime minister now for more than a decade by promising to keep Hungarian identity and culture intact. But it's come at a great cost to the country's democratic institutions. But as soon as Viktor Orban comes to power in 2010, Hungary starts declining. This is Kim Lane Shepley, a Hungary expert and professor of international affairs at Princeton University, speaking at a 2021 lecture for the Foley Institute. Orban's re-elected in 2014, and Hungary moves out of consolidated democracy to semi-consolidated. And then 2019 crosses the line out of the field of democracy altogether to what Freedom House calls a transitional or hybrid regime. This is like a spectacular fall from a consolidated democracy to an authoritarian, competitive authoritarian regime in 10 years. Orban's government rewrote the constitution and packed the courts with loyalists. The government and its supporters took over independent media to silence criticism. The Orban administration is also pushing its own version of Hungarian history. It has revised the official curriculum for schools to include nationalist writers, but not Imre Kertes, Hungary's only Nobel Prize winner in literature. Kertes was Jewish, and his most well-known work, Fateless, is a semi-autobiographical account of his experiences at the Auschwitz and Buchenwald concentration camps. He doesn't shy away from showing how Hungarians turned against their own. This scene from a 2005 movie based on his book shows a Hungarian border guard refusing to give water to Hungarian Jews unless they hand over their valuables. The changes in the curriculum upset Marianne Schiller, a literature teacher at the Miklos Radnodi School. Uh, the narrative is based on lies or based on, on mythology. According to Schiller, the narrative is nationalistic, but anti-Semitism also plays a prominent role in the government's choices. Take the reaction to Kertes's Nobel Prize. Half of the nation said, oh, it's not a Hungarian Nobel uh, because uh, Kertes is a Jew. The government is also altering history books. Take Miklos Horty. Remember, he's the World War II leader who played a role in the deportation of more than 440,000 Hungarian Jews to death camps. Horty's relationship to Hitler and the Nazi party is glossed over in the new books. Vera, the Holocaust survivor, cannot accept the rehabilitation of Horty. We cannot deny he was the last ally to Hitler. I don't say that Hungary or Hungarian people, but he was. The regime was. There's a bronze bust of Horty not far from Vera's home. She can't hide her disdain when she passes it. When, whenever I walk there, I spit this way. That is my opinion. But Vera still can't bring herself to blame the Hungarian people for complicity in the Holocaust. 
Even Miklos Radnodi, Fer's favorite Hungarian poet, couldn't do it. Before Radnodi collapsed at a forced labor camp, he wrote a poem predicting he would be shot. Uh, the person who is shooting him in the poem is speaking in German. But the soldiers who ended up killing him were Hungarian. Schiller says Radnodi could not bring himself to imagine this. This is the, the most po- uh, patriotic uh, moment I can imagine in, in poetry. But there were moments when Radnodi seemed to struggle with the reality before him. Schiller told me about another poem called I Cannot Know. It hints at betrayal by neighbors and friends. She recites a verse for me. She's saying, For we are guilty too, as other people are, knowing full well when and how and why we've sinned so far. The poem goes on to ask us, how can we protect future generations, innocent generations, from the sins of our past? Vera takes this message from her favorite Hungarian poet to heart. So our generation's task is to tell new and newer generations because that somehow protects them. I am sure it protects And that is my aim and task. It has been nearly all of her life. And so as long as she can, Vera will keep telling her story. Wow, that's incredibly touching. You know, in a lot of ways, the Hungarian political situation reminds me a lot of a similar phenomenon in China that you've been exploring. What's been going on? You're right. They may be two different countries halfway across the world from each other, but the heart of the story remains the same. Viktor Orban, in particular, brings to mind Xi Jinping. China's President Xi Jinping sees himself as a man of destiny. Like Orban, part of Xi's political brand is similarly inward-looking and relies on rosy pictures of national glory. He's called on citizens to imagine what he calls the Chinese dream, or in Mandarin, the Zhongguomeng. China's been stifled and oppressed by the West for hundreds of years, and the country is destined to return to glory and dignity on the world stage, or so Xi says. And part of this Chinese dream includes reasserting the Communist Party's power over territories like Hong Kong and Taiwan, right? I remember hearing a lot about protests in Hong Kong in the news. Yeah, exactly. So Hong Kong and Taiwan both exist in this sort of gray area between independence and CCP control. So officially, Hong Kong is a special administrative region of China. The British took Hong Kong in 1841 as a spoil of war following China's defeat in the Opium Wars, but a lease was renegotiated such that China reacquired the territory in 1997. So since then, China governs Hong Kong under a system called One Country, Two Systems, or Yi It nods to Hong Kong's relative sovereignty compared to other Chinese provinces. Because unlike in much of mainland China, Hong Kong has a pretty strong democratic tradition.
I talked to Professor Sharon Yam, who studies gender and sexuality and citizenship regimes at the University of Kentucky. She's also from Hong Kong, so she tells me that Hong Kong has been a powder keg of sorts for the past two decades since the handover in 1997. Every few years, a new and increasingly egregious piece of legislation sets off a wave of resistance. So I think that in, in all these cases, it was a catalyst. The, the government's action or inaction is, is a catalyst um, that attracted a wide range of people from Hong Kong society to, to participate. The latest round of unrest was sparked by the National Security Law, passed in June 2020. It criminalizes any act of secession, subversion, terrorism, and collusion, but it's really vague about what those words actually mean. When the day when the national security law was abruptly implemented, folks still came out to protest. That was when we realized that even protest slogan like Liberate Hong Kong, Revolution of Our Times would be deemed, can be deemed seditious. Hong Kongers seem to really have to fight for their identity. Yeah, definitely. I also talked to a student who grew up in Hong Kong but wishes to remain anonymous for the story out of fear of the national security law. Let's call her Taylor. See, Taylor says she considers herself both Chinese and a Hong Konger, but that's also controversial. I can imagine. I mean, given the history of protests that you just laid out, mainland China is a touchy subject in Hong Kong. Exactly. So there's a good degree of Hong Kong mainland enmity. Language, for instance, is a flashpoint of contention in Hong Kong where the official languages are Chinese and English, but Cantonese is what's traditionally spoken. So if you're in Hong Kong and you hear someone speaking Mandarin, you know that they're probably a mainlander. That really reminds me of the nativist sentiments that have taken root in Hungary as well. Yeah, it seems like everywhere there's this fear of displacement. So in Hungary, what I'm hearing is that politicians like Orban seem to effectively mobilize it against a perceived other and revise their own history accordingly to create paper villains. In Hong Kong, on the other hand, the shadow of the CCP looms large, literally and figuratively. So Hong Kongers see themselves as a bastion of democracy and individual values, while just a few miles away, the CCP cracks down on civil liberties and press freedoms. And who knows what will happen in the future? Hong Kong, of course, isn't a one-off for China's Communist Party, the CCP. See, the CCP is familiar with movements like these. Mass mobilization, young people and students in particular on the streets, because they've already erased sensitive political events, like the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. They have literally erased this event from history books. So what does that feel like, to be told your memories aren't real? I had exactly the same question. I wondered what people remembered, how the Tiananmen protests started, how it felt to be there, how it felt when the government cracked down on them. And I wanted to hear about this from the people who experienced it. For more than 30 years, he has told and retold a story that changed his life. The story of 1989 and what happened in Tiananmen Square. 
Back then, Zhou Fengsuo was a physics student with a Beatles-style haircut. Zhou had grown up watching China's Communist Party focus on free market economic reforms that left farming families like his to languish. I always remember being hungry, always looking for food, meat. For example, we, we were only able to eat meat probably three times a year. He wanted to make China a more equal and democratic society. His academic achievements had propelled him from the rural outskirts of Xi'an to Tsinghua University in Beijing. So once he reached university, he got involved in student politics and activism. He even organized student government elections for the physics department. It was the first taste of democracy. He also found Chinese politicians to admire, Communist Party reformers like Hu Yaobang. The Communist Party forced Hu to step down as party chairman in 1987. Two years later, on April fifteenth, nineteen eighty-nine, he died. Zhou gathered on Tiananmen Square with others who saw Hu as a champion of reform. Zhou laid a flower wreath for Hu at Beijing's Tiananmen Square and sensed that something big was coming. Hu's death felt like someone lighting a match in her tinderbox. It quickly became widespread protest in Beijing and all over China. We felt the excitement. Challenging the government, it was almost like freedom was within reach. The protest epicenter, though, was Tiananmen, one of the largest public squares in the world, spanning around 100 acres. Zhou felt the square transform into the energetic heart of China's pro-democracy, pro-economic inequality, and anti-corruption movement. The students did all they could to help those who joined. They handed out coats at night when it got cold. They organized first aid teams for those who went on hunger strikes. Foreign journalists arrived to cover the protests. At this hour, there are hundreds of thousands of people here in Tiananmen Square. Perhaps as many as a half a million, even more. In the history of communist China, there has never been anything like this. Zhou was thrilled that their message was reaching the outside world. Meanwhile, China's Communist Party was preparing to fight back. To understand why the party saw these protests as threatening, we have to go back to its founder Mao Zedong, who considered himself the country's great uniter. Chairman Mao, as he was known, stepped in after nearly a century of anarchy and warlord politics following the Opium Wars, when China was divided among Great Britain and other Western countries. Mao established the People's Republic of China during a speech in Tiananmen Square on October first, nineteen forty-nine. Here, Mao is declaring the founding of the People's Republic of China, or in Mandarin, Zhonghua Renmin Gongheguo. Mao held China together by ruling with an iron fist. The party refused to acknowledge that his efforts to rapidly industrialize China through collectivization. Called the Great Leap Forward, resulted in a famine that caused the deaths of tens of millions of Chinese between 1959 and 1961. Mao also violently cracked down on dissent. Between 1966 and 1976, during what he called the Cultural Revolution, he sent intellectuals, teachers, political rivals, anyone who didn't support his vision, to re-education camps in the country. At least a million died. 
families were encouraged to turn on each other. Mother and father are dear, but Mao is dear, goes this communist song from the time. In this 2013 video by the Guardian newspaper, the song is sung by Chinese lawyer Zhang Hongbin, who lives with the regret of denouncing his own mother, who was executed. When Mao died, he left a larger than life void that the Communist Party had difficulty filling. So a strange thing happens when he dies and he gets replaced by economic reformers. This is Edward Friedman, professor emeritus of political science at the University of Wisconsin Madison. He studies Chinese politics and foreign policy. They've lost Mao Zedong's charismatic legitimacy. He's gone. He can't be replaced. Friedman says that Mao's successor Deng Xiaoping was facing a number of challenges in maintaining the party's absolute control and legitimacy. Countries across East Asia were modernizing and embracing globalization and democracy. Friedman says the Chinese Communist Party couldn't capitalize on Mao's brand of anti-Japanese nationalism. And they can't be anti-American.、Um, they're very much copying the Japanese、uh, model of development. And they need American support to sell to the American market. So instead, in the 1980s, new leader Deng Xiaoping moves China onto a path of industrialization and globalization. He threw open markets in what he termed the Great Opening Up and Reform, or Gaiga Kaifang in Mandarin. But in the real world, it takes a while before all of those things kick in. And in the first era of、uh, getting your economy going. You don't see much the results. Deng famously said, "Let some people get rich first." It meant that a few urban coastal cities would be prosperous, while rural areas like Zhou's hometown fell behind. It also meant that friends and family of party cadres would reap immense and immediate economic benefits. The protests at Tiananmen Square were a response to this nepotism and clientelism. Friedman says the Chinese left behind by Deng's reforms wanted to reclaim a sense of national pride. The student movement never called itself a democratic movement. It always called itself a patriotic democratic movement. The movement wasn't just for students. Supporters included Liu Jinghua, then a young mother who ran a garment shop in Beijing. She joined thousands of Beijing workers protesting out-of-control inflation and rampant government corruption. My daughter had just turned one, one year and two days old. Think about it: if a young mom like me was joining the protests, you can just imagine how peaceful and happy the atmosphere was. On May 24th, Liu joined the Workers' Autonomous Federation, an unofficial labor union. She was one of the few women in its ranks. Its members marched to the square in hopes of calling attention to workers' rights and economic inequality. At the time, ordinary people were still crowded in wooden houses with very low living standards. What kind of people were getting rich first? People with connections to the bureaucracy, bureaucrats. So that's why us common folk supported the protesting students in their demands for things like freedom of speech, freedom of speech to expose those corrupt bureaucrats. She says the Chinese Communist Party tried to portray the Workers' Federation as bad and troublesome people who were opposed to Chinese values. 
But as a mother, how could I not understand family values? As May turned to June, Tiananmen Square seemed to pulse with frenetic joy, celebration, and sometimes chaos. At least, that's how it seemed to Feng Zheng, a talented athlete from Hefei in eastern China, who had followed his classmates from Beijing's Sport University to the pro-democracy protests. I thought the square was our last holding ground and that I had to hold vigil here to the very end to see what would happen. We also viewed ourselves as peaceful student protesters. I didn't believe that the Communist Party would do anything to us. Many thought Deng Xiaoping, then China's leader, was bluffing when he threatened to send in troops. But one young woman was so unnerved she fainted, and Fang ended up taking her to a hospital. It was almost as if that young woman had a premonition. Deng sent soldiers and tanks to Tiananmen on June 3, 1989. Bullets were rushing past our heads and hitting the monument behind us. He ran away, turning onto West Chang'an Street, where he became disoriented by vivid yellow-green smoke. I realized that a tank was in front of me. I knew it was a tank because I could see the really long cannon. He remembers the tank coming right at him. He remembers falling to the ground. He felt like his entire body was being squeezed. I immediately knew, oh no, I've been run over, but I didn't know where exactly. It was like my entire body was being pinched. And I felt the sense of being dragged. He remembers yelling, save me. He looked down and saw white bone protruding from his leg. And that was the last thing that I remember before I became unconscious. Fang awoke to see a doctor leaning over him. He was in a hospital. I remember that there was this very high-ranking director in the hospital, family named Yang, And I remember him talking to me when I first awoke, and he said, Lad, do you know your situation? He seemed very sad, as if he was afraid that I couldn't accept that I lost my legs. Yeah, I said, did I lose my legs? I already knew. Before I lost consciousness, I saw the bones of my legs. Other protesters managed to escape. They included Joel, the physics student from Xi'an we met earlier. He described Tiananmen and the surrounding area as a war zone. We realized like they were trying to create this atmosphere, fear around Tiananmen Square. And after that, we heard gunshots all over, all directions. It was like a war zone. The next day, Joe saw smoke, the tracks of tanks, bullets, and bullet holes. Then he passed the bicycle garage near the hospital. I saw about 40 bodies on the ground. People, mostly young people like me, outside of Fuxing Hospital, which is west of Tiananmen Square. That was most horrible, heartbreaking thing I've ever seen in my life. Upon hearing the news that the military had entered the square, Lu, as a spokesperson, tried to alert the crowd through her loudspeaker. For her efforts, the CCP accused her of inciting violence. But really, this was a lie. In the eyes of the CCP, I'm an anti-revolutionary. There is no official death toll. Estimates range from the dozens to the thousands, most of whom weren't even students, but ordinary people struggling to make a living and protesting against what they perceived as rampant government corruption. 
This government massacred its own people. We have to make them confess guilt and step down. My attitude remains the same today. The Tiananmen uprising lasted from around April 17th to June 4th, 1989. Western media covered the government crackdown. A famous photo shows a protester standing in the way of a military tank. Western leaders swiftly denounced the Chinese government and threatened sanctions. Here's President George H.W. Bush speaking the day after the crackdown. And I now call on the Chinese leadership publicly, as I have in private channels, to avoid violence and to return to their previous policy of restraint. The demonstrators in Tiananmen Square were advocating basic human rights, including the freedom of expression, freedom of the press, freedom of association. These are goals we support around the world. These are freedoms that are enshrined in both the U.S. Constitution and the Chinese Constitution. Throughout the world, we stand with those who seek greater freedom and democracy. The Chinese government was unmoved. Authorities quickly moved to arrest and isolate those involved in the protests. Zhou Fengsuo, the physics student, was arrested as soon as he arrived at his childhood home in Xi'an. He went to jail. They were given enough food and was handcuffed nonstop for three months. After his release, the secret police followed him everywhere. He repeatedly applied for a visa to the U.S., which he received in 1995. He left his entire family behind. Fang Zheng, the protester who was run over, was investigated by his university for his account of how he obtained his injury. When I went back to the school after my injury to take a graduation photo, my school told me that the photos had already been taken. They purposely didn't want me to be in my class's graduation photos. This was something that hurt me deeply. Beijing Sport University declined to grant Feng a degree after he refused to state that his double amputation was the result of a road accident. He struggled to find work and couldn't register his marriage. He couldn't get a passport. But his severe injuries meant he escaped imprisonment. He even represented Beijing in 1992 at the third All-China Disabled Athletic Games in Guangzhou, where he won two gold medals. Two years later, the Chinese Communist Party banned him from competing in the Far East and South Pacific Games because of his association with Tiananmen. They worried about me because my appearance at a game would probably remind people of what happened during the crackdown in the Tiananmen protests. The Chinese government eventually issued Feng a passport in 2008. He moved to the U.S. with his family the following year. And what became of Lu, the Beijing shop owner? She says she hid in a friend's apartment following the crackdown. She eventually escaped to Hebei province in South China. After I had already left the city limits, the government brought 13. 13 marshals, army members, to my home. They had to search every corner. Can you imagine how terrifying it would have been? Imagine me, a young mother. How much could I have resisted? She later fled to Hong Kong, then to the U.S. after receiving political asylum in 1990, leaving both her husband and young daughter for several years. She moved to Brooklyn, where she became a union organizer with the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union. As Zhou, Fang, and Lu built their lives in the U.S., 
They talked openly about what happened at Tiananmen. Inside China, however, the Communist Party was busy excising 1989 from any official record. Louisa Lim noticed when she arrived as a correspondent for the BBC and later NPR. Chinese leaders have always had、uh, this relationship with history, where the incoming dynasty rewrites the history of the past, and that has continued under the Communist Party. I mean, I don't think that the Communist Party would see anything to be gained from a reckoning with, with its own past. As the 25th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square uprising approached, a publisher asked Lim to write a book about it. And I didn't really actually want to do it because I just thought it would be really hard and very sensitive and extremely difficult. But then that thought kind of just kept nagging at me that if I didn't write this book, it wouldn't get written, and those stories would never be told. You know, as a journalist, I've always been interested in the stories that aren't told. The stories others may overlook. You know, I I think there was always this narrative in the West that everything had been told about 1989. That there was nothing new to know, and I just felt that was completely wrong. That nobody had even bothered to sort of look at it for years. Lim spent years digging into this history to avoid detection by the government. She wrote up her notes in a laptop that had never been online. She discovered that few young Chinese knew anything about Tiananmen, including the famous photo of the man facing off with a military tank. She uncovered details of a violent suppression at the time of a related uprising in the city of Chengdu. And I think that was the most sensitive portion of the book, for in terms of you know for the Communist Party, because this was the part that had not really been documented before. Lim called her book "The People's Republic of Amnesia." I think one of the effects of this forced amnesia is that there is a huge lack of accountability in China, because the state has never been held to account for its mistakes, and we're not just talking about Tiananmen. Also, you know, the famines, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution. There's never been any kind of introspective moment of accountability. Where it's accepted that the party made mistakes and party policies led to deaths, whatever the party does is correct, and you know it should never be questioned, no matter what happens. The result, she says, is the Chinese have now grown used to the idea that political reform is dangerous and should be avoided. To this day, that kind of thinking has persisted. Lim realized she couldn't return to China after her book came out. You know, it was quite clear to me that going back to China to report from China would be extremely hard. That I probably wouldn't get a visa to do that. So after the book came out, then I shifted into academia. I do still write. I do still report. But you know, my day job is as, a, as an academic, teaching journalism. Rather than as a correspondent in the field, so it, it has had <laughs> you know, quite a significant impact on my career, in good ways and in bad ways. Lim now lives in Australia. The Tiananmen protesters we met in this story, Zhou Fengshuo, Fang Zheng, and Liu Jinghua, have watched from the U.S. as China has grown especially powerful under current Premier Xi Jinping. Xi is imprinting China with his own brand of nationalism. 
He's cracking down on corruption, arresting more than 100,000 people so far as part of what he calls the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Lu is not convinced. She believes corruption within the Communist Party ranks has only gotten worse. The corruption that exists today is 10 times what it was in 1989. 10 times. Zhou says Tiananmen has emboldened Chinese leaders to crack down on minorities, including ethnic Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. The Communist Party has sent more than a million Uyghurs to re-education camps to force them to be loyal to Beijing. Basically, emboldened this government to use any manner to repress without any inkling of accountability or repercussion. Because if you could get away with killing while the war, what, what else? Zhou continues to speak out about Tiananmen. He says he rarely socializes with other Chinese nationals who consider him an enemy of the state. Zhou, as well as Lu, the shopkeeper, and Fang, the athlete whose legs were crushed by a tank at the protests, are symbols of Tiananmen. I wish there were more people like me who were willing to tell their stories. Fang brings up a couple of protesters he knows personally, both of whom were injured by tanks during the Tiananmen crackdown. One of them, who's in China, made that choice because if you speak out like me in China, you pay a price. I also know one of them who's in the U.S. In exchange for going abroad, he swore to secrecy and said that his injuries were obtained through a bus injury. He's heard of many other former protesters who are adopting China's version of Tiananmen history. Many people made similar trade-offs since 1989. I want to keep the memory alive a little longer. He says he sees this as a kind of self-betrayal. And as China's power continues to grow, he fears this careless trade of memories could compromise the truth forever. That's really incredible that you were able to talk to people like Zhou and Fang, who went through such a traumatic experience. I can imagine that reliving those experiences can't be easy. It's definitely not easy, which is probably why, like Vera, the Hungarian Holocaust survivor you spoke to, they're so driven to keep these memories alive. Exactly. Memories create history. And they become even more important when governments try to change the story. But as we've heard, sometimes the harder governments try to erase them, the harder people work to keep them alive. And that's the essence of careless memories. We'd like to thank Marcel Kenesse, Vera Shakaras Farsa, Marianne Schiller, Zolt Istvan Voldli, Borbala Paul, Sylvia Tsenadi, Mate Almos, as well as Sharon Yam, Zhou Fengsuo, Fang Zheng, Lu Jinghua, Jonathan Sam, Louisa Lim, Joe Dennis, and Candace Wu. Special thanks to our classmate Sophia Winograd for her violin performance of Bartok's Romanian folk dances. We also had music from Paul Kalmar, Su Xiaokang, and Wang Yuxiang, Cui Dian, Kei Tse, 
CPP Music, and JHL Music. You also heard audio from Magda Brown's lecture series, Critical Pasts, Archival Footage, a BBC documentary kept by the American Hungarian Federation, and a lecture by Professor Kim Lane Shepley at the Foley Institute. As well as archival footage from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Sky Reporter, CNN, the Associated Press, Historical Speeches, and The Guardian. Thank you for listening. Here's series host Luke Maurer to close out the show. Thanks, Francesca. Shifting Borders is a podcast series created by the students of Princeton University's Spring 2021 International Journalism class. Our supervising producer is Joanna Kakissis, a Spring 2021 visiting Ferris professor of journalism. Our assistant producer is Francesca Block. An associate of Hindenburg Systems mixed our episodes, with additional mixing by Francesca Block on episodes 3, 4, and 5. The McGraw Center's Ben Johnston helped us get this series online and onto a podcast platform. Juliana Wojtenko designed the podcast artwork. Eric Sutherland composed Supercontinental, which we used as the Shifting Borders theme music. Special thanks to Joe Stevens, Margot Bresnan, and Deborah Amos of the Princeton Journalism Program, as well as Kathleen Crown of the Humanities Council, for supporting student-driven projects like these, even during a pandemic when we had to do nearly all of our reporting remotely. We would also like to thank the many exceptional journalists from around the world who spoke to our class via Zoom this semester, and whose words of advice helped shape our stories. They include Ada Peralta, Lulu Garcia-Navarro, Mark Lowen, Daniel Estrin, Martha Wexler, Sally Hayden, Daniel Trilling, Riha Malkusa, Andras Peto, Will Dobson, Jess Jang, and Derek Arthur. Our next episode, episode four, is called With Friends Like These. It's hosted by Dev J. Swall and Isha Mittal. I'm Luke Maurer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>